Good morning, everyone. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. My name is Dan, our college and young adults pastor at PBC. And uh, just kind of want to take a moment to think back to last weekend and the great time that we had here together celebrating and remembering the resurrection uh, on Easter Sunday, Good Friday, the Friday before that, and really just uh, soaking that in and being in the Lord's presence with that. I know one of the things that I enjoyed most about Easter this year, uh, which is always one of the things that I look forward to here at PBC in our Easter services, is the baptisms that we do. Uh, this year was especially meaningful for me. I got to baptize one of my own kids. Uh, and we also had one of our young adults and two of our college students get baptized. And so uh, we were just celebrating that new life in Christ all around. So it was a great weekend last weekend. Uh, I know many of you were here and able to uh, join in for much of what we did. I also wanted to take a moment along the lines of college ministry and mention an event that's coming up two weeks from today, Sunday, April 30th. We're going to be having a lunch for college students after the second service. Uh, so if you are a college student or if you know some college students, you can let them know. Uh, we would love to just connect with you, whether or not you are connected with our college ministry on an ongoing basis. Uh, we would love to connect with you, to meet you, to treat you to a free lunch, uh, and just to spend some time together. So that'll be after the second service, uh, two weeks from today. So I hope you can join us for that. Well, it was five years ago on an Easter Sunday that my wife, Lindsay, and I had a very important conversation. It was one that I was a little bit surprised hadn't come up earlier, um, but it came up at this time because our oldest son was a year and a half uh, old at the time, and this was our first time trying to do an Easter egg hunt for him. So uh, we put him down for a nap after church, and we get out the eggs, and we go to hide them, and Lindsay walks to the sliding glass door and opens it up and starts going out in the backyard. And I just freeze in my tracks. And I, I look at her and I was like, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm going to hide the Easter eggs. I said, who hides Easter eggs outside? Like an Easter egg hunt happens inside. It's like, where have you been? All of the Easter egg hunts I've ever been have been outside. We're doing this outside. And I realized in that moment that growing up in Minnesota, where we have snow outside most Easter Sundays, I grew up always doing egg hunts inside. Here we are in sunny California, 75 degrees and sunny outside, doing an egg hunt outside makes all the sense in the world. And so that is what we did. There was a, there was a question that came up in my mind in that moment. Is there a right way to do an egg hunt? Is there a wrong way to do an egg hunt? I'm not sure about that, but either way, with an egg hunt, the, the stakes are pretty low, right? Even if there is a right way and you do it the wrong way, it's not a big deal. But there are some questions in life where the stakes are higher. There are some situations that if you do something the wrong way, there's more on the line. There's a price to be paid. The question that we're gonna look at together this morning is, is there a right way to approach God? Is there a right way to come to Jesus? Last week uh, at our Easter service, we heard that Jesus knows our name and he calls each of us by name. 
We have an invitation from Jesus to come to him. An important question for us to consider then is, is there a right way to come? Is there a wrong way to come? How do we come to God in the way that he would have us? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 24 this morning, jumping back into the book of Exodus. Uh, we started studying Exodus together in September of last year. If you haven't been here for the series up till this point, this is a great time to be joining us because we're at a bit of a seam in the book. We saw last fall in the early part of the book, this was uh, the Lord bringing freedom to his people as he released them from their slavery in Egypt. He then brought them out into the wilderness and in the wilderness, he gave them the law. He, he made a covenant with his people as he was forming, the, forming them into a nation. And now this morning, we're gonna move into a third part of the book that is all about worship. And as we think about worship, one of the foundational questions that we have to ask is how are we supposed to approach God? How are we supposed to come before him in worship? And so we're going to be looking at that question this morning. And what we're going to see as we go is that the answer to this question is going to have a lot to do with the nature of who God is, the nature of who we are, and what Jesus has accomplished for us. So let's look together at the beginning of Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 2. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up to him. We see here, right at the beginning of this chapter, right at the beginning of these verses, the invitation to come. God says, Come up to the mountain. They were at Mount Sinai. This is the same mountain that Moses had already been up on where God gave him the 10 commandments. He, he told him what these commandments were. And now they're back at the mountain. They're down at the bottom and God is giving some more instructions. But these instructions start with an invitation. I want you to come up to the Lord. Now, now God could have said, I am God. I am up here on the mountain. I want you all to stay down there. I want you to stay far away. In fact, I don't want you to pay much attention to me because I'm not paying much attention to you. And some of us might approach God that way. Just like for Lindsay and I, our experience with egg hunts growing up shaped the way that we thought about egg hunts. Our, our life experiences shape the way that we think about coming to God. The families that we grow up in shape the way that we think about coming to God. The experiences that we've had in communities of faith shape the way that we think about coming to God. And maybe some of us think about God as a God who is up there on the mountain, but just wants us to stay down here because he's not that concerned about us and we don't need to be that concerned about him. We all have different default ways that we approach God. But, but, but God doesn't say that. Instead, God gives an invitation to come up to him on the mountain. And this invitation to come to the Lord is repeated all throughout scripture. As we work our way through the Bible, we come to Isaiah, the prophet, who says, come all who are thirsty. Come all who are thirsty and drink from our God who is the living water. 
we get to Jesus and we hear him say things like, come, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Over and over, all throughout scripture, there's this invitation to come to the Lord, to come to Jesus. He invites us to come. We could even summarize the whole story of scripture something like this. God created people, and in the beginning, they were in perfect relationship with him. But then people rebelled, and they chose to walk away from him, out of his presence, to do life their own way. And from that point on, in the early chapters of Genesis, God has been extending an invitation and making a way for people to come back to him. So we have this invitation all throughout scripture, come, come to me, come to the Lord. Here on the mountain, God extends this invitation to Moses and the people. I want you to come up to the Lord. I was a freshman in college when my friends and I had uh, these brilliant spring break plans that were coming together. We were so excited. We thought what would be an incredible spring break is to throw our surfboards on the car, load up some clothes, a few sleeping bags, and drive down to Mexico and find a beach to camp on for days while we surfed. This sounds like this was an incredible plan. We were really excited about it. And so I started talking with my parents about it. And they started asking a few questions. I said, so, well, which beach are you going to? Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. It's like, it's like the coast. There's beaches all over the place. We'll, we'll find a beach. Well, is, it, is that area safe? Well, I'm not sure what area it is yet, but I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll be safe. I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, well what about when you're out surfing? Like, what's going to happen to your stuff? Couldn't someone just come and take it? I hadn't really thought about that. Maybe. I don't, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, what if, what, what if something happens to your path? They started asking all of these questions, but I, I just assured them that everything was going to be fine. Then about a month from, from the trip, my friends and I realized that uh, this was a really terrible idea. <laughs> that these were some good questions that my parents were asking, and so we decided to, to set aside our plans. But in the meantime, my parents ha- had planned a, book, uh, a trip to Hawaii, and it just happened to be over the week of my spring break. So I called them up and said, Mom and Dad, how would you like it if I came to Hawaii with you? <laughs> On your dime. <laughs> this sounds like a great idea. Now, now that, might, that might sound like a bold ask, right? That might sound like a bold request. But it didn't feel like a bold request to me. Because I knew that I had an open invitation maybe not an open invitation to this trip, but, but I had an open invitation from my parents to come because I know that they love me and they, they want to be with me and they want to spend time with me and they want to do things with me. So it didn't feel like a bold request to say, can I join you on this vacation? God extends this invitation to us. I want you to come. And we might think, oh, that, that, that's a that's a bold thing to do, right? That's that's a bold thing to come before God, but God is standing with open arms, full of love, and he says, I want you to come. I want you to come. And even if you were planning on going on some different, crazy, not well-thought-out vacation, I would rather have you come. I would rather have you come to me. God extends that invitation to us, no matter what our life circumstances, no matter what our history of faith, no matter what kind of relationship with him we do or don't have, 
God opens up that invitation to us. I want you to come to me. He extends that, that invitation to Moses and the people here in Exodus 24. But the, the invitation is a little bit nuanced. Maybe you picked that up when we read it, but let's look again. Verses one and two of Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to, to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So here we see there's an invitation, but there's varying levels of access that people are gonna have to God. In fact, the people, they're told just to stay at the bottom of the mountain. Aaron and his two sons and 70 of the elders, they're invited partway up the mountain and only Moses is going to be invited to the top of the mountain. And we might wonder, what is God doing here? What, what is God up to? Why does he structure things this way? I want us to, to think about what, what I said earlier about the, the story of the Bible as an invitation to come. God created people in perfect relationship with him. People rebelled and they walked away. And ever since then, God has been calling people back to him. But that process of coming to the Lord has become more complicated after the fall. And it's made more complicated by the nature of God who is holy and by our nature as sinful people before a holy God. No longer can we just come straight into God's presence. And so God begins setting up these structures that allow people to come to him because that is his heart. He wants people to come. But now there's these new structures in place. Maybe you remember back in 2017, there was a solar eclipse that happened. Solar eclipse is when the moon passes between the earth and the sun. This was a total solar eclipse that you could see from everywhere in the United States where that moon totally blocks the sun and looks something like this. It's a picture of a solar eclipse. It's, the, the, it's this incredible thing. It's beautiful. And everybody at the time, they were blocking out their schedules at work and they were figuring out where they were gonna be when this happened so that they could step outside and witness this solar eclipse. But what do you need to look at a solar eclipse? You need those funny glasses, right? You get those, those solar eclipse glasses, those ones that look like the, the 3D glasses when you go to the movie theater. Because if you look right at the sun, even when it's mostly blocked by the moon, the sun is so intense, it's so bright, it's so hot and powerful that you can permanently damage your eyes by looking at it. And so we need these glasses that we put on to stand between us and the sun so that we can look at it without getting hurt. This is something of what it's like for a holy God and sinful people to be in union together. Yes, God invites us to come, but he says that the, the, there's certain ways that this needs to happen. And so he, he gives these structures to his people in the Old Testament. A couple of them are foreshadowed here in this passage on the mountain. 
One is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this tent, this tent of meeting. When Moses gets up to the mountain, he's going to be given instructions for what this should be like. And what we see is there's varying levels of access to the center, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is going to dwell. And only a few people get in to the middle, and most of the people are out on the outside. It's much, much like the description of the mountain that we have here. And then we have the, the priesthood as well. The priests are those who go before God on behalf of the people into the holy place, into God's presence. Here we have Aaron and his two sons, who is going to be the first priestly family up on this mountain. And then we have Moses acting as high priest, the one who goes all the way to the top. God puts these structures in place, not to keep people from him, but to allow people to come into his presence, given his holiness and our sinfulness. These structures. And, and Moses understood this. Moses understood that this was a good thing, that, that this was for the, their, their safety and their well-being. And Moses knew a bit of what was expected of him as one who was going to go to the top of the mountain. And so we see him uh, leaning into another structure that God will put in place, which is the sacrificial system. Look at what Moses does in verses three through five. Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So here we have Moses, before he goes up to the mountain on behalf of the people, we have him offering these sacrifices. Two different kinds of sacrifices, sacrificed in different ways and for different purposes. The first is the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, you take the animal, an ox in this case, and you slaughter it and you place the whole thing on the altar. And the whole thing is burned up on that altar. And the purpose of a burnt offering was, was to achieve atonement or forgiveness of sin. That that animal, as it died and as it was burned up, takes the penalty that was ours to pay for our sin on it. It is sacrificed so that we don't have to be. There's atonement, there's forgiveness of sin that's happening here. And the other part of a burnt offering is it's an act of devotion, an act of consecration. We take the whole animal and place it on the altar. The whole thing is burned up as a sign of the fact that I want to offer my whole self to the Lord. And so Moses does this. He offers himself to the Lord. He cleanses himself. He achieves forgiveness of his sin through this sacrifice of this ox and on behalf of the people as well. The second kind of sacrifice that he's going to bring is the peace offering. In a peace offering, the whole animal was not burned, but only a portion of the fat of the animal is placed on the altar. The rest of the animal would be eaten. Some of it would be eaten by the priests. Some of it would be eaten by the people who brought the sacrifice. And it was, it was a, a communal experience. And, and the purpose of a, a peace offering, which is also sometimes called a fellowship offering, is communion. It was this shared meal. It was fellowship with God, just the chance to be with God and to be with one another 
in God's presence. So you have the burnt offering and you have the peace offering. One deals with our sin. The other is focused on our relationship with God. It's two sides of the same coin. Moses Moses is finding atonement for his sin. He's, He's distancing himself from his sin and he's moving towards God. He's leaning into relationship with God on behalf of himself and on behalf of the nation. These two sacrifices that Moses makes before he is ready and able to enter into the presence of God. And then something else strange happens here, or at least it sounds strange to us, and it wouldn't have been as strange to them. But read what happens next, looking, starting in verse six. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What we have here is is we have this ceremony in which the covenant that the Lord has made with his people is being confirmed. It's being ratified. So they, they take the blood from this, this peace offering. They have, he separates it in two parts. Half of it he throws on the altar. And this blood that's thrown on the altar is a symbol and a sign of God's intention to follow through on his part of the covenant. He says, I will do what I have promised to do. And then the other half of the blood is first poured in basins. And then Moses takes this blood and he begins to sprinkle it on the people, spraying them with the blood of this ox. And drops of blood would be landing on the people, on their clothes. And that blood would stay on their clothes for days as they're out in the desert. And and as they saw that, it would be this continual reminder of their obligation to God as well. And so they respond, everything that the Lord has commanded, we will do. It's this, this ratification of a covenant between God and his people, another structure that God has put in place so that they could be with him. But there's one more piece to the ratification of a covenant in the ancient world. And that was a communal meal, a shared meal that would take place after the terms had been agreed upon and after this covenant ceremony had taken place. And this is exactly what happens here between God and his people in the next few verses, starting in verse nine. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hands, that is God, God did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel, They beheld God, they ate and drank. Moses, Aaron and his sons, 70 of the elders, they make their way partway up the mountain. And as they do, they see God. They see God. Now now this would have been a terrifying experience because They've been told that if you get too close to God, you will die. 
as sinful people, if you get too close to God, you will die. Moses very clearly later in the book of Exodus asks to see God. God says, you can't see me 100% because if you do, you will die. And yet here, the people see God. But, but what do they really see? How do they describe it? Do they describe his head, his face? And they say, oh, he's so beautiful. No. Do they describe his stature? Oh, he, he, he's so powerful. He's so big. He's so strong. No. Do they describe his feet? Not exactly. Instead, they describe the ground under his feet. They say it's, it's blue, like, like sapphires, clear as the heavens. They're saying, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. Well, why is it that they focus on the ground below the feet of God? It's because they are laying down on the ground, prostrate before God. Because they understand that they are sinful people in the presence of a holy God, and they do not deserve to be there. And so they fall down before him and they, they begin to lift their eyes just a little bit. And even before they get to his feet, they see the ground just glowing, radiating with the glory of God. And they can't go any higher. They, they can't go any higher because they are overwhelmed with the weight of the glory that emanates from this holy God. And they are overwhelmed with their position before him. And so they bow down and they worship him. And, and as they behold God, even to this extent, the, the narrator draws special attention to the fact that God did not strike them down. He, he, he did not, by his grace, he allowed them to enjoy this moment in his presence. And then they share this meal together. The people the leaders, Moses and Aaron and his sons, eating together in the presence of God. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. What we see in all of this, in the foreshadowing of the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, in the structure of the mountain, in the sacrifices that are made, in their response when they are in God's presence, is that to come before a holy God as sinful people, we must come in reverence. There is an awe. There is a wonder. There, there is a caution. There is an element of fear here. The people come before God in reverence, in worship, bow down before him. And God would have us come in his presence as we think about the way that we are supposed to approach God, he would have us come in reverence, acknowledging, God, you are holy. You are worthy. We are sinful. We are lowly. We are broken. We are not worthy. We come with reverence. This is how the people approached God. But as we sit here this morning, some important things have changed. As we sit here this morning, we sit on the other side of Easter Sunday. We sit on the other side of Good Friday on the cross. And, and, and what that means for us is that as we approach God, we must, also, we, we must also approach with reverence. We also have those 
solar eclipse glasses that we must look through. There also must be something between us and God, but that something is no longer the temple. It's no longer the priesthood. It's no longer the sacrificial system. Instead, the thing, the person that stands between us and a holy God is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. He is the one through whom we look, by whom we have access to God. And so we still come with reverence, yes, but through Christ, we get to come with a new degree of confidence. The author of Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews chapter four, says it this way, verses 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying that because of Jesus, because of his role as our high priest, because of the one who entered into the holy place on our behalf, we now have access straight to God. We don't have to offer those sacrifices. We don't have to go to the temple or the tabernacle. We don't have to wait at the bottom of the mountain. We get to go up to the top of the mountain with Jesus and to be in God's presence with reverence, yes, but with confidence and boldness. We get to walk into the presence of the holy God, no longer scared of the fact that we might die if we get too close. No longer worried that if we happen to look too high and look at God, maybe we will be struck down. Because as we look, we are covered with the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven with, of our sin if our faith is in Jesus. The price for our sin has been paid and the doors to that holy place, the throne room of God have been opened to us. The author of Hebrews comes back to this idea a couple chapters later in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, he says this, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have access straight to the throne room of God. And here the author of Hebrews picks up on this image of Moses at the foot of the mountain with the people, having just sacrificed these oxen, spraying the people with the blood of this animal. He says, we too have been sprayed. We too have been sprinkled with blood, but it's not the blood of an animal. It's the blood of the son of God by which we are washed clean, through which we are forgiven of our sins on account of which we can walk with confidence into the presence of God to enjoy relationship with him. This is what we have in Jesus. There is still a a mediation that happens between us and God. We still need those solar eclipse glasses to come to God, but, but we have the glasses of Jesus. We have Jesus, our savior, who stands before us and invites us into the presence of God. In Exodus 24, Moses 
is invited to the top of the mountain. As they share this meal, he's still with the elders, with the leaders about halfway up the mountain. But now God is going to invite him to come even further. As we look at the last part of the chapter, starting in verse 24, back in Exodus 24, verse 12, I mean. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant, with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whenever a dispute arises, go to them. So, so Moses arises and he, he, he waits for God. He tells the people to wait for them. And then he's going to go further. When Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and covered it six days. And on the seventh, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. As the people are, are at the bottom of the mountain, they look up and they see this cloud representing the presence of God. And it, it, this cloud is on fire. Right? There's flames, maybe there's flashes of lightning. And they look and go, if anyone goes in that, they're dead. <laughs> because that is a consuming fire. And yet Moses walks in on behalf of the people and by God's grace, he is not consumed. He is not struck down. Instead, he is invited to stay. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is on that mountain with God. And God goes on to tell him more about what he wants for Moses and what he wants for the people. He begins to share more of himself with Moses. I just imagine what that would be like to be on that mountain. What would it, like to be, what would it be like to be in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights? And yet here this morning, as we gather in this worship center, as we gather online from our homes, where we are, God is here. The presence of God is here with us. The spirit of God is here with us. And we have an opportunity to enjoy the presence of God just like Moses did on that mountain. We don't have to go up to the mountain because God came down from the mountain to us and he is here with us. And I would love to just pause here for 40 days and 40 nights and give us just some time to sit in God's presence. We can't exactly do that. I'm not gonna hold you here for 40 days and 40 nights, but we can take a few moments. We can take a few moments just to be with God, just to enjoy the access that we have to God through Jesus, our savior. And so we're gonna do that for just a few moments. So I want to invite you to, to close your eyes, to quiet your hearts, 
and to come. To come to Jesus. To accept his invitation. To come with reverence and awe and wonder and to come in confidence that we are known, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and that we are His. So let's take a few moments just to sit and to enjoy the presence of the Lord in the person of Jesus by His Spirit that He has given to us.